Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology, based right here out of Santa Barbara. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. And now, a word about the sponsor of our podcast, Anchor. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this week's episode of That Anthro Podcast. Today, we have a very special international guest, Dr. Julian Riel Salvatore, a professor of archaeology at the University of Montreal and a researcher of Paleolithic and Neolithic humans, human adaptations to changing environments, and material culture and tools from these early humans. So I actually was introduced to Julian through his work and a class that I took last quarter, which I've talked about so much on this podcast, everyone's tired of it, Uh, Dr. Sarah McClure's People of the Ice Age. So he gave a great lecture on one of the sites that was occupied during the proto-orignation phase, um, Repo Bombrini, which is a topic that we'll discuss more later. But welcome, Julian. Thank you so much for being here. I'm super excited to chat with you. Well, thanks a lot for having me. I'm happy to be here. I always like to start off our episodes with just a little intro into how you got started in anthropology and what inspired you to pursue the journey that you're on now and, you know, being a working archaeologist. Yeah, I'm actually one of these really annoying people who figured out extremely early on what they wanted to do and then never kind of swerved from that. So I was, I was extremely fortunate when I was about, I was nine when my mom uh, took me to France uh, the first time. And um, we, uh, as part of that, she had mostly planned to visit castles because I was really into knights and things like that at that time. And she decided during the trip to make just like a swing through uh, the Paragord and take us to me and my brother, uh, Gabby, actually, (laughs) Uh, to to the replica of Lascaux. famous uh, painted cave that had opened a few years before. And when we did that, I was just completely taken and um, decided that I would do archaeology and probably Paleolithic archaeology specifically. (laughs) So at at nine years old, I kind of knew what I wanted to do. And I was very disappointed to know that you couldn't really study archaeology until you got to college. Mm. And so I kind of sat on my um, on my desire until then but mostly focused on history and uh, social sciences when I was when I was in college and or pre-college yeah that's it basically then I went to Yale University for my BA in 96 studied there for three years and I got my first uh, digging experience uh, on a Roman villa it was in Italy yeah uh, it was in the Molise region uh, where my family is originally from so I'm half French Canadian half Italian and the trip to France was actually on the way to Italy. Uh, it's the first time I went to Italy too. But I got the chance to go to uh, excavate this Roman villa, which was extremely neat, but uh, not uh, exactly what I wanted to do either. And so I uh, did that. And then afterwards, I applied and got into Arizona State University in, two, uh, in 1999. Got my master's in 2001, my PhD in 2007. And so I've basically been in school since I was, uh, you know, like five or six. And um, my kids don't understand it, but uh, it's 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 pretty thrilling. Uh, yeah. Pretty thrilling. I'm I'm uh, I enjoyed it. And after that, I was lucky to be able to come back to McGill for a postdoc funded by the Canadian Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council uh, for two years. Uh, and then I moved back to the States uh, in, two, in 2009 and started teaching as an assistant professor at the University of Colorado, Denver. After that, a series of things happened and I managed to get an offer from the University of Montreal, which is in my hometown. And so um, it was a big deal for me to be able to do this in, uh, in French since French is my first language. Mm. And so I jumped at the opportunity and 
came back home and have been teaching now at the University of Montreal uh, for just over seven years now. Yeah. And the primary language of instruction is French? The only language of instruction is okay. French. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, it's uh, we've got four universities in Montreal, two English language, McGill and Concordia, and two French language, the University of Montreal, the Université de Montréal, and uh, the University of Quebec in Montreal, which is uh, sort of like the, so like the UC versus CSU oh, kind okay. of divide, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I want to go back to um, your experience as a child seeing Lascaux. Do you remember at all, like the emotional impact or what you thought? Because, you know, Paleolithic cave art is so like people that have seen, I've never seen one in person, but I know they say it looks like it was done yesterday. Mm-hmm. It evokes all these emotions when you really see it in person. I was curious if you remember any of that. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I remember vividly, actually. It was, uh, I mean, we visited a whole bunch of sites. And, uh, but Lasco, I remember, first of all, I remember the, the sort of the feeling of walking into the replica of the cave, right? Because it's noticeably cooler than it is outside in the summer. And so I remember kind of just feeling drawn in by this completely different world. And then you kind of walk in and they kind of unseal a door and you walk into the replica. And it's just these walls that are covered with these extremely vivid and super colorful uh, replicas of animals and everything. And it's just mm-hmm. completely breathtaking, really. Mm-hmm. I, re- I, ju- I just remember kind of standing there kind of mouth agape and just wide-eyed just looking at it and taking it in and um i think my mom realized that she had done something at that point <laughs> but she was like oh i sparked she, something she, yeah. <laughs> but i don't think she had realized what exactly and so uh no I, I distinctly remember it and um it's it's one of these things where um like i i, I got her to buy me a number of uh little guidebooks right mm-hmm. about being an ice age hunter-gatherer and stuff yeah. like that and about some of the um some of the early researchers so the abbe Bray, who was a famous paleolithic uh, art researcher um and yeah i was just kind of enthralled by the characters and you know the fact that the site was also discovered by four children right with yeah. their dog that fall in the hole just kind of made it so much more relatable Mm -hmm. and I was like I could do this you know. Hey everyone Gabby here just interrupting to let you know that a little background about what Julian's talking about so um, Lascaux was actually discovered it's a super fun story um, by four young boys and their dog when the dog sort of stumbled into this hole in the ground um, kind of like a cave it ends up being you know the Lascaux cave but um, we don't really talk about much about the discovery of the cave. We just kind of briefly touch on it. But it's actually, there's a whole chapter in it in the book called The Cave Painters by Gregory Curtis, which I know I've brought up on the podcast before. So if that story and Julian's kind of little snippet into the Lascaux cave kind of piqued your interest, I would really recommend um, checking that book out because it does a wonderful job kind of contextualizing the site and then also a lot of the other cave art sites in the area. So yeah, without further ado, back to the episode. I had Robot a very, the dog. Right. <laughs> I had a very pie in the sky image of what archaeologists actually did. You know? Oh, but, everyone does. That's yeah. okay. It gets shattered really like on your first field school. You're like, oh, okay, I get yeah. it now. But my first field school really helped me overcome like my fear of spiders. If it's bigger than a quarter, that's my rule. I'm still not going to be excited about it. But now the little ones like I can deal with. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Uh, you, you definitely learn to uh, to deal with the unexpected. That's uh, <laughs> that's yeah. the, the one the one constant, I guess, the one universal yeah. of field work. So having oh, sorry, having no, kids of it. your own now. Do you imagine or have they already had the opportunity? I'm not sure how old they are. Have you had mm-hmm. the opportunity or have you thought about, you know, kind of introducing them to perhaps, you know, archaeological sites in the region or when you go on vacations or per- even sites you work at maybe? Yeah, so I've had uh, I've had the experience. I, actually, I've had the good fortune of being able to bring my kids with me to do field work. That's great. Um, and so we brought my oldest to another site where we were digging called Yorini Candide, which is famous for a number mm-hmm. of burials that have been found there. And he was one and kind of just learning to walk. Uh, and so it wasn't a great environment for a kid. There's lots of holes, lots of pits. 
uh, and it's in a cave. Uh, but it was it was great to actually be able to spend some time uh, and kind of make him understand from a really early age what it is that I do when yeah. I travel away, right? Because now it's harder with school and everything to to take them with me. But um, yeah, I think I think they kind of developed uh, an understanding for this kind of unusual thing that their dad does. <laughs> yeah, and they can explain it to their friends. Uh, and I think they've got a very sort of technical understanding for what archaeology is. And I remember, I guess it was in 2015 or 16, we started excavations at a new site called Arma Varan. We should have a paper coming out kind of soon on that. And to get to the site, you have to go down this valley, cross this little river, and then back up the other side of the valley. And, you know, they came and visited the site with my wife. Um, and uh, you know, they saw the site and um, that, that was great, but then, you know, they, they were, <laughs> they were five, five and one, so they didn't want to stay in the cave and they went back yeah. to the river and were kind of, um, kind of just playing around in the water. And one of my collaborators, Fabiana Grino, uh, who I work with at Rupar Wimbrini, uh, happened to come to the site later that day with, with some other friends or colleagues. And, um, my oldest, Matteo, had found a piece of a tile um, in the, the river. And so when he saw Fabio, he was like, oh, Dio Fabio, Dio Fabio, look, I found this piece of a tile. I found it about a meter away from the shore and maybe like five meters north of where you would cross right here. And Fabio was like, why are you telling me this? He was like, because in archaeology, context is everything. <laughs> wow. Did you yeah. just, was that the proudest moment ever? I was, I was, yeah, yeah, I was, I was pretty proud. You know, sometimes you don't know if things you tell your kids is sinking mm -hmm. in, but that was, that was a demonstration that yeah. in some cases, some cases it did. So Definitely. it's just, it's just become this running gag now in the family where we talk mm -hmm. about context being everything. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and even just the developing of his observational skills is so wonderful and mm -hmm. saying that he can describe where he found something i'm sure it'll help his memory as well <laughs> we yeah, all, yeah, yeah. we all need that you know because i've thought i had the wonderful opportunity to travel with my family a lot um growing up when i was quite young like younger than 10 and go to several mm -hmm. countries and i think back and i'm like oh i wish i remembered more but also the little bits that i do remember as i go through college and i learn more about the history of the regions it's like oh now at 20 i'm having these oh my gosh, this place that I saw or this place that I went or this um, thing that I observed, I now have this new sense. And I'm like, oh, I almost wish I could have had that when I was like eight or nine. But it's also cool that I'm getting this renewed as I'm, you know, learning more things in school. So it's like that toss up of, you know, how young are kids to remember something, but also like the impact that it has on their later lives. Super interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's great. I think, I think, you know, the, the key thing for me has been to try to never really lose that sense of amazement that you get when you get mm -hmm. to visit sites and places that you know a lot of people don't necessarily get to and so I, yeah. I try to keep that alive and I've been fortunate to be able to, to travel quite a bit and see a lot of different places so uh yeah and so and, and actually actually it's funny we're kind of talking about this before but uh you know being able to talk to my kids about it at night and telling them what it is that I saw and why it's so great using you know, non-technical language uh, and and no dates, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, has been has been pretty pretty instructive. Switching gears, what type of classes are you teaching right now at the University of Montreal? What are some of your favorite projects or assignments that you get to do with your students? Mm -hmm. uh, so I teach uh, an array of different classes. Uh, I was hired here to flesh out the environmental archaeology program. And so I teach a class called Archaeology of Human Environmental Interactions, uh, which I think is a pretty standard class. Yeah. Uh, a fun nowadays. class, though. But it's uh, it's really great. And uh, it's it's a lot of fun because it, I think it uh, takes the students away from the nitty gritty of how you do archaeology and sort of just uh, learning about the culture history of different regions and things like that to kind of think more about uh, sort of higher level questions about, mm -hmm. you know, uh, how do we know or what can we say about humanity's place in nature over the long term? How do we talk to biologists, zoologists, ecologists? Um, how do we uh, 
bring archaeology to bear in contemporary uh, issues. And so uh, that, that's a really fun class to do. And as part of that class, uh, I teach uh, a module on site formation processes, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, I have stuff in my lab that I can use to do this, but it's a pretty big class, so I can't bring the students to my lab. And so what I have them do for one assignment is to um, go off on campus and document site formation processes in action. And so we have the good fortune of having the campus be on the side of, on the north side of the hill on which Montreal was built. And so we have a lot of uh, animals, uh, you know, groundhogs, stuff like that, uh, that we can see, do, that we can see uh, doing bioturbation. There's also, because it's a slope, lots of pooling, lots of gravity effects, lots mm -hmm. of sedimentation, uh, you can see erosion. Uh, the winter in Montreal is something that uh, lends itself very well also to uh, leaving traces of freeze-thaw effects. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's always it's always kind of a <laughs> an interesting exercise to see what the students will bring back in terms of documented site formation processes. Um, and you know, like slowly, I'm building this file of things that I should send to you know. Know, campus facilities <laughs> to really kind of work on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah, no, so that, that's that's a fun class. And I teach uh, I teach a, a class called Monsters, UFOs, and Pseudo-Archaeology, oh. uh, which is a new class that uh, I put together two years ago. I started teaching it the first time uh, right before uh, the pandemic hit. And so I never got to teach it in full uh, until this year. And uh, the students seem to have really liked it. And I think that, you know, obviously the topic uh, is something that, that interests a lot of people. And I get a lot of people that are not anthro majors also in that class. Um, and uh, that's fun. And, and, and for this class, you know, I, I'm still working on some of the different uh, evaluation methods because I, <laughs> I've had to either adapt or try to just feasible at a distance, right? And so I've been, really uh, permissive with due dates. And so like I have best before dates, which are recommended mm -hmm. dates for students to give their uh, assignments by, but uh, they don't get penalized if they don't do it by that day. It just helps us get some of the grading under uh, underway and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, they do, um, they do a little research project on the pseudo-archaeological case study. And for me, it's really interesting because even though I grew up speaking French in this city, um, and I teach in French. Most of my schooling in archaeology, well, all of my schooling in archaeology was was in English. And I was trained essentially as an American archaeologist. And um, so a lot of my points of reference, uh, archaeologically speaking, are, are American. You know? <laughs> and so um, that, that's been really interesting to see the case studies that students will bring me because a lot of them are based in France or some of them are based in Quebec. And you really see how uh, it's a phenomenon that kind of cuts across all, mm -hmm. all realities. Uh, beyond that, I teach our old world history class here at uh, University of Montreal, which uh, I need to find a new name for because it's, it's, not, it's not great. But uh, I teach that, I teach uh, archaeological methods, I teach um, also graduate courses on uh, the emergence of inequality, complex hunter-gatherers, things like that. Well, I think our listeners have gotten a good sense of kind of your training and, you know, your areas of interest. So if you don't mind, let's dive into one of the sites that you've worked at and published on, which is Riparo Bombrini in Liguria. And is that, was it on the border of France and Italy? I feel like I remember. Yeah, so there's um, there's a big uh, cliff formation called the Balzi Rossi that sits about 500 meters inside the border uh, in Italy. And it's just dotted with caves. There's caves uh, and rock shelters. And they've been explored and exploited since uh, the 1800s. And the there's two rock shelters, one of which is uh, fairly well known, uh, Riparo Moki, which has a complete upper paleolithic sequence starting at about 42,000 going all the way to the beginning of the Holocene, and which is uh, at about ten thousand. Yes, about ten thousand, and um, we have 
this smaller rock shelter. And originally it was probably part of the same talus slope, so the same slope of sediment in front of a cave called uh, Cabillone. And on one side you would have had uh, Riparo Moki, on the other side you would have had Riparo Bombrini, kind of just filling in sediment in these little niches uh, at the base of the cliff. But in the late 1800s, they put a railroad through uh, the cliffside and truncated that big sediment uh, deposit in front of the cave and separated effectively the two the two sites, making it to two sites. And so in the 70s, the site was kind of discovered as a remnant of sediments that were still in situ in place. And um, a colleague of ours, uh, Giuseppe Vicino, excavated the site in 1976. We went back uh, with a team led by Fabio Negrino, uh, who I've mentioned before, and Sofor Nicola, uh, who's a professor of biological anthropology at the University of Pisa. Brigitte Holt, who's a professor of biological anthropology at the University of Massachusetts, Amherst. And uh, Stephen Churchill, who's a professor at Duke. And I saw them present on this site in 2003 at the paleoanthropology meeting when I was a graduate student. I was just out of my master's. And I knew by that point that I wanted to uh, work on the transition from Neanderthals to modern humans um, in Italy, if possible. And so I saw them present this site that they had started working in, uh, started working on in 2002 uh, at the meetings in 2003. And I, I kind of rushed them and I was like, you need, you know, do you need an extra pair of hands? And they were extremely kind. Uh, I, yeah, that, that, you know, you have lucky breaks sometimes yeah. in your life uh, or, you know, like crosses in the roads and stuff like that. Serendipitous timing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so this was, this was one of these things where uh, it, it was just wonderful. It allowed me to start working in Italy at a site that captured specifically that interval that I was interested in. Uh, and so I joined them in 2003 and then uh, kept working with them until 2005. I analyzed part of the material from Bumgrini for my PhD, which was done in 2007. And then after that, uh, we kind of let the site sit for a little while. I worked at the Arena County Day from 2008 to about 2012, 13. And when I moved to the University of Montreal and Fabio got a position at the University of Genoa, uh, we kind of rekindled the idea of going back and uh, completing the excavation of the site because the site was getting damaged um, uh, in terms of its exposition and stuff like that. And so from 2015, we've been going back, uh, well, I guess I should say now from 2015 to 2019, we went back every summer. Then last year the pandemic hit and so we weren't able to go. And the travel restrictions this year also made it so mm -hmm. that we're not excavating. But we still have funding for another field season and we are, we went through the earliest modern human or earliest homo sapien levels uh, in 2015-16 and then started digging into the mysterium in 2017. And so we've got this extremely fine-grained record of what the last Neanderthals in that region were doing. And it seems to be a region where Neanderthals um, really thrived for a long time, but they seem to have been kind of cut off uh, from the wider network that they were a part of uh, when modern humans arrived from Italy up north and from uh, continental France down south. And so it kind of sandwiched Neanderthals in that region and kind of constrained them there, which meant that some of the wider networks that they would have been a part of uh, were probably truncated, uh, altered in different ways. And we see their relatively rapid uh, disappearance. Uh, and this is around 45,000 years ago? So uh, this is shortly before 42,000 years ago. Oh, right. Like the process, okay. the process of like this sandwiching process, I guess you could call it, uh, starts about 45,000 years ago. Okay. Uh, but uh, it seems to be kind of a drawn out process. And uh, Neanderthals seems to seem to disappear from the region uh, shortly before 42,000 years ago. And almost immediately after you see traces of modern humans who show up and start doing all sorts of different things that Neanderthals weren't quite doing before, mm -hmm. but also 
kind of building on the foundation and a knowledge of the territory that suggests that maybe there was some kind of communication somehow. Mm. Uh, and so this is one of the elements that we're trying to figure out uh, with this ongoing process, uh, this yeah. ongoing project, sorry, where we're um, trying to uh, expose a larger area than what was excavated before the site uh, to really kind of get a sense of how people lived in that space, how they mm -hmm. organized it, uh, how they conducted different tasks in different parts of the site. And uh, we're seeing some continuities, but also some breaks across the, the transition there, uh, which is an interesting thing. Yeah. Um, because historically, uh, it was very much a clear break between the Neanderthals and modern humans. But there are, in the last Neanderthal, some behaviors that seem to anticipate some things mm -hmm. that modern humans would do thereafter, so. Yeah. The history of Neanderthal research is super interesting. I'm reading Kindred by Rebecca Rags Sykes right now, and it's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, I, I know Becky uh, quite well. Oh, you do? Oh, yeah, that's I do. great. Yeah, she's, she's great. The, the book has been, like, I've seen the book and I've flipped through the book and I've referenced several parts of the book, but I haven't actually read the book through and through. And so I, I feel, I feel, I shouldn't be saying this live. But. Well, I can edit that part out, but yeah, no, it's a, it's a great but book. The first order of business, now that grades are in and mm -hmm. uh, I'm wrapping up the last of the administration because uh, I'm also undergraduate director here. At the mm. well, uh, now that kind of these loose ends are being tied, I'm going to be able to kind of sit back yeah. and start going through the pile of books that accumulate mm -hmm. over the past nine What's great with this book is it's also that uh, it's it's so current right? mm, yeah <laughs> like she's like I, I know i know she was you know changing things until the last possible second yeah. before sending it to press just to uh, make sure that it it was the most mm -hmm. up-to-date possible and there's so much research going on on neanderthals in all sorts of different parts of uh, eurasia that that it's really a feat to kind of present something that is um uh an authoritative yeah kind of synthesis of what is known about Neanderthals, right? Definitely. So, so I guess maybe just tell me how you kind of got started on the Irene Kennedy project, what you sure. got to do, and then a bit about, we can talk about all the amazing burial goods that came out of that site because yeah. it's incredible. Yeah. So Irene Kennedy is sort of this iconic site for the Western Mediterranean in general. Um, and for the Paleolithic, it has uh, one Gravettian burial. Uh, oh, okay. Japan, like you said. Uh, which is this sort of uh, young adult or late teenager, 16 years old, who uh, who died uh, from what looks to be trauma and uh, was buried with this extremely lavish uh, set of burial goods. And um, that was, so I, I'm going kind of backwards in terms of the history of the, the find. This is the find that the site is maybe most well known for, but that site dates, or that burial dates to about uh, 25,000, uh, 23 and a half thousand years before present. And um, it's one of these things where, you know, when you work at sites that, you know, some of the uh, pioneering figures of the field worked before, you kind of realize just, you know, how fast they went sometimes, which, yeah. is, which is terrifying, but also just how much incredibly cool stuff they found. And, um, when they started working there, the two lead excavators, uh, Luigi Cardini and Luigi Bernabo Brea, um, immediately found in the Pleistocene levels, uh, a, essentially a burial ground, a little cemetery of what they called Mesolithic foragers. Turns out they're just a little bit before the, mm -hmm. the Mesolithic, right? And you have, about, you have about 20 people that were buried at the site in this sort of necropolis and you've got adults and young individuals and you've got multiple burials and you've got multiple phases of burials seems like the site was used as a burial ground for about you know 1200 years or so but separated into two phases the reason we went back to the site and started excavating there we we're fully cognizant of the fact that the burials had been found and yeah. we <laughs> were probably not going to find any other burials but uh, we wanted to understand better how the site had formed and accumulated mm. so that we could better contextualize, uh, better contextualize uh, some of these behaviors and also try to understand the gap 
between uh, the necropolis and the young prince, because the young prince, that's what Giovanni Principe means in Italian, um, is 23 and a half thousand years old. And uh, the necropolis is maybe 12,000 to 10,000 mm. years old, right? So you've got this gap of about 11,000 years. And you know, what happened? Did people just not live at the site uh, at that time or did they use it differently? And so we wanted to figure some of this stuff out and we went back and excavated on the margins of the primary excavation, right? This, I think that this is um, sort of the, the moral imperative of our generation of archaeologists to kind of clarify uh, some mm -hmm. of the pioneering work. Uh, and, you know, this is something that's been ongoing since the 90s, especially, where people kind of go back to some of these mm -hmm. key sites to better understand, better date, better yeah. uh, make make sure that some yeah. of the... Go through back dirt. I know yeah. Dr. McClure's talked about going through back dirt piles. Because, you know, you know, like everybody's a product of their time, right? So people mm -hmm. were using the best methods they had. Yes. But... Um, sometimes you just want to pull your hair out because you're like, how could you do this? You know, but um, what, what, what was cool with, with this project is that even though we excavated on the margins of this uh, original trench that they dug, and they dug uh, this huge area from 1939 to 1942, and in 1942, they had excavated through the necropolis and a little bit under it, and they found some stone tools, but nothing major and they were about to wrap things up and they're like well we should really see how deep the site goes and so they put in a two by one right a two by one meter trench and they just went down straight about three meters and they hit the young prince <laughs> they just fell like right on top of it wow and it's like you know that never happens odds, right you <laughs> never know, this, this will never happen yeah. to me <laughs> mm -hmm. but uh yeah so there's uh, there was there were these, these coincidences that make the site uh, interesting. And uh, what we found at that site, we, we were lucky actually to find uh, a human bone that was isolated in the same levels as the necropolis. And uh, with work that we did with uh, a colleague called uh, Vitalis Paracello, who's now a professor at the University of Cagliari in uh, Sardinia, we were able to show that uh, this heel bone, this talus, actually belonged to one of the individuals that was in the necropolis. But the bone itself was found five, six meters east. And this was sort of the first inkling that we got that uh, maybe there was some burials further away from uh, the main necropolis area or uh, that people were routinely uh, manipulating the bones of the deceased. We've got plenty of evidence. Uh, Vito has, has published a lot of really super exciting work on this, that people were using uh, elements of past burials to essentially decorate uh, new burials, um, but that there was some potential genetic links or familial links between the bones of, that were recycled and people who were buried after that. And so, um, yeah, so we did that. And on top of that, we also identified another uh, unknown or so far undocumented uh, burial custom in the final Paleolithic, which was the breaking of objects and mm. leaving part of it in, in burials. And so when we were excavating at the site, uh, we found these flat elongated pebbles. They look like little uh, ladyfinger cookies, <laughs> right? <laughs> and um, except they're, they're made out of limestone. So uh, it, it was neat to find them because you know they're mar little marine pebbles and they have no business in the cave and it's not something uh, you know an owl would bring in or a bat or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So clearly people were bringing them in. And uh, some of them were broken right in the middle. And that was really, it was a really striking pattern because in the sample that we found, just over half was broken like that. And it's not something that happens just like that. Even stepping on them won't result in that kind of breakage. I mean, it won't break them if you step on them. And so it really, it was intentional breaking of some of these objects. And when we looked at them and uh, there was a PhD student at Arizona State called uh, Claudine Gravel Miguel, who I worked with, who I've been working with for over a decade now, who uh, took a closer look at these objects and replicated the process by which they were broken. And she was also able to show that they were all covered in ochre before mm -hmm. they had been broken. And so, and that the breaks 
themselves were not covered in ochre. So, you know, the objects were used, ochred up somehow, and then broken and then abandoned. But the pieces, no pieces actually refit. So some mm -hmm. pieces seem like they were taken away. And so the working hypothesis that we developed for that is that it seems to have been maybe uh, use of these little pebbles as spatulas to decorate the body of the deceased. Uh, the bodies with, the deceased, with red ochre. With red ochre. Yeah. And breaking some of these objects, uh, maybe after last use or whatever, leaving half at the site, taking half away. And this is uh, maybe some of the earliest evidence that we have of intentional breaking of objects in a funerary context where you kill objects uh, mm -hmm. for whatever reasons, maybe because they were in contact with the deceased or they represent the last link or whatever. And um, this, this is a really mm -hmm. unexpected thing that we found uh, while looking at these objects that were really not the focus of anybody's um, work before. Yeah. And when we went back through the archives and looked at the stuff that people had excavated in the 40s, we saw a lot of these objects. Mm -hmm. Uh, but we only saw complete specimens in the burials. And so this is where the new work becomes interesting because it kind of tells you that maybe some of the imperfect or less image-worthy uh, elements were not conserved mm -hmm. um, because we then found another sample uh, that had been excavated at the site in the 70s, and it's full of these broken pebbles, just full of it. Mm -hmm. And so uh, there's no broken pebbles in the 40s, there's some in the 70s, and we have a lot in the 2000s. And so, you know, again, this is, this kind of opens up more questions than it, it really answers, but yeah. it's certainly interesting. Uh, and it maybe also sheds some light in terms of how um, some objects were prioritized in the illustration mm -hmm. of some of these burials uh, in the 40s. So, yeah. Really interesting. But, you know, that side is, that side is super, I, it's, it's, it's amazing, right? Because it's, mm -hmm. you've got this, again, it's one of these cliffs that overlooks the Mediterranean. Yeah. It's super striking. It, you, there used to be a dune of white sand right in front of it, leading up to the mouth of the cave that kind of made it visible from a really, really mm -hmm. long distance. And so it was clearly a landmark for the longest time. And even today, it's a landmark. People used to go into the site all the time. And one thing that people would do when they went to visit the site is that they would write on the wall mm -hmm. with like a pencil or whatever, you know, Guido is here or whatever. Mm -hmm. and they, they'd leave the date. And you've got a part of the cave, which is closer to the, the cave mouth, because most people don't, didn't come uh, fully equipped. Um, but it's just covered with these little signatures. And part of me has always wanted to go back and just document where people signed when, yeah. right? And try to see if we can actually recognize some people's last names and trace down their descendants and see if they still have photographs of these visits to the cave. Because between the fieldwork in the 40s and 50s and the fieldwork in the 70s and our fieldwork in the 2000s, there were gaps where the site was not uh, necessarily super well preserved. And so a lot of sediment kind of shifted or some sections mm, fell down yeah. and like that. And so, um, no, just to see the evolution of, of the site. And people really identify with the site a lot. Uh, they, you know, when we started working there, we would tell them that we were working there and they, you know, they would all you know, keep us at the coffee, at, at the bar, uh, you know, over coffee to hear more about, you know, you know, why we were there and then why, you know, this team of Americans and Canadians and Italians uh, was coming to Finale Ligure, which is a small town where the site was located. Um, and so it's sort of a point of pride, right? And there's still a lot of stuff in there. And I mean, beyond just the hunters and gatherers and the Paleolithic, there's also an unbelievable Neolithic sequence uh, above that. Uh, some really, really early uh, farmers that seem to have settled there. Uh, we've got some really, a master student of mine did a project and identified residues of beer on uh, some potsherds that were found in deposits about 4,200 uh, 4, years uh, B BC. And so uh, it's, it's, just, it's, it's just a fascinating site. It's just yeah. wonderful. It's one of these sites that you need to have. It's so big and so mm. complex. And there's so much work that's been done there before that to put everything back together, you need to know that you're going to have 
funding for 10 or 15 years, right? Yeah. Otherwise, it becomes really overwhelming really fast. And um, we're, we're still just working on publishing the little bit that we excavated from, from 2008 on. Um, and it was a, you know, a tiny area, really, just a few square meters. So, um, so yeah, eventually, maybe, but mm -hmm. uh, the site is there. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's still there. It's there. waiting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess this is a good place to ask what projects do you plan or hope to pursue in the future? Okay, well, we, we have an ongoing project. It was also sort of paused uh, by the pandemic and by sort of administrative issues in 2019 uh, at a site called Arma Varani, where we have uh, Mustirin, so Neanderthal levels, dated to about 50,000. And then you've got a huge gap in deposition, and you've got uh, late Upper Paleolithic so about 15,000 year old deposits above it. And you've got above that, uh, slightly younger deposits that date to the Mesolithic, so about 10,000, 9,000. And on top of that, you've got Neolithic deposits at that site. And this, this is a cool site because uh, Liguria has been a focus of uh, archeological fieldwork for a really long time. Like, going back into the 1800s. And so a lot of our work revisits sites that have been known or excavated for a long time. And this site had never been known, never been excavated except by some looters that kind of dug uh, towards the mouth of the, the cave. And it was a, a fairly unique opportunity to just dig a brand new site. And we did that and we found uh, some really interesting things in Mysterian and found some traces of hunters and gatherers. And we also found uh, a burial uh, in the Mesolithic level that we're uh, trying to get published right now. Um, and what I was telling you before uh, about finding things on the last day of your excavation happened there, right? This is this the kind of thing where I actually had left the site early to go back to uh, my family that summer, and I was I was maybe in this office or maybe I was in the, I was in the mailroom, and I got a text from uh, my colleagues that were kind of wrapping up the excavation there, and you know like the big the big joke right is like is, is that we'll find a burial right mm -hmm. so like we've been, and me and Fabio have been working together forever, and you know we've never found a burial. But, and so he texts me and he's like, "Guess what we found?" I was like, "What burial?" He was like, "Yep." <laughs> and so, and this was as they were kind of wrapping up. And so, um, there's this amazing burial of uh, uh, an infant there. Um, but I can't, I can't really go into too much because it's not published. But it is just amazing the level of detail that we can get into um, who these people were. Yeah. Uh, you know, even 10,000 years ago. Um, and yeah, so we've got really interesting genetics and physical anthropology and archaeology too, because the, this, this little baby was, was uh, lovingly uh, buried with uh, a bunch of ornaments. And so I've got another master's student here, uh, Catherine Brun, who is doing her master's replicating some of these ornaments and trying to figure out how they accumulate where. And what's interesting is that the ornaments also seem to reflect people giving objects of theirs to deceased people. So kind of like mm. these pebbles that were broken at yeah. early day. Uh, it seems like there's a dimension of that going on with another medium, uh, which is, which is just mind-blowing and so yeah. um this is one project that that is uh kind of ongoing and this is a project that's uh, being led by fabio and a colleague at the university of colorado uh jamie hodgkins and her husband uh, kaylee orr and colleagues from uh, washington university in st louis uh, the university of tubingen university of ferrara university of bologna uh i'm forgetting somebody here but uh Anyway, don't, don't forgive me. But yeah, it's a really cool, large-scale, international, multidisciplinary project. And so yeah. that's going on. And, and Claudine, Claudine Gravel-Miguel, who I was talking about, who, who kind of highlighted these broken pebbles. And so now with Claudine, we're actually in the process. We just got funding for a new project, looking at some of these older collections 
uh, from across Liguria, which is this sort of crescent-shaped region that links uh, southern France to mainland Italy. Um, and we're just going back to all these collections that have been partially or unpublished. And we're going to go back to a couple of sites, maybe, and get some sam dating samples to better contextualize some of this stuff. But it's a project that we developed with uh, COVID-19 restrictions in mind, right? So we're not doing mm -hmm. filmmaking this year. It's all about setting it up. Um, and then it's not focused so much on excavation, but really focused on analysis of material yeah. that is already there. And this goes back to what I was saying before. I think that we have we have a responsibility as, as a discipline to look at this stuff uh, instead of just digging up more material. And I, you know, I love field work. Yeah. I, I, there's nothing that thrills me more than being in the field, in a cave and, you know, walking up to a cave and just like feeling the cold air kind of wash over you as you walk in. I love that. And I can't, I'll never get enough of it, but there's so much material that is already out there that we just need in boxes, to, just sitting yeah. around that has so much information. I completely agree. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, yeah. And that actually is my last <laughs> ongoing project. Um, I've been leading the reanalysis of material from uh, an aceramic Neolithic site from Iran called Ganjagare, mm -hmm. um, which was excavated in the 60s and 70s by a former professor at the University of Montreal, Philip Smith, who brought the material back to the University of Montreal uh, and never uh, was able to publish the monography, the monography of the excavation. And uh, the site itself was never really fully published. And so he retired uh, quite a while ago, left all of his field documentation, all of the artifacts and everything. And so with uh, a handful of masters and PhD students, we've been uh, going through some of this material now and uh, trying to reconstruct the stratigraphy based on field documentation, trying to uh, reconstruct um, or do some analyses on some of these artifact collections. And uh, yeah, so that, that's a project that's sort of like an archaeology of archaeology, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's extremely rewarding in a way because I feel that we're really getting somewhere and getting some new information about this site that for the longest time was considered important because it has yielded the earliest evidence for gold domestication um, in, oh. uh, yeah, in, in Western Asia. But um, the context from which this information was coming uh, was was kind of lacking, and so you know, taking my my son's words to, to heart, I was like, context is everything, and yep. so we, you know, we went back to this, and uh, this this was uh, something that the pandemic actually uh, favored in terms of a research project. I, I will say I was very very lucky to have this to I don't want to say fall back on because it's going to make it sound like I don't fully care about this project, but to turn my attention to, I guess. Um, and also to kind of take a different look at the archaeology, uh, you know, because here I'm not going back to the site. I'm not re-excavating. Yeah. I'm just kind of looking at stuff that's there. And so it kind of fits in this broader trajectory of my work where we kind of critically revisit some of this stuff, but without doing the field component. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, and so we have a paper that should be coming out any day now in uh, plus one on the site. So uh, that's that's exciting, also. Yeah, that is really exciting. Congratulations, and I look forward to to the one about the infant burial, um, yeah. because uh, osteology is definitely my niche mm -hmm. subject and focus, and what I'll be pursuing graduate school in. Um, but yeah, I think it's super cool too that on the podcast we get to kind of preview like these mm -hmm. academic articles that are coming out because sure. maybe two, three months ago, I'm losing all concept of time. <laughs> um, I think maybe three months ago I had um, Dr. Jennifer Miller on and we were talking about her site at Penga Yasadi and I was like, did you find any human remains? And she's like, yes. She goes, but I can't tell you about it because there's an article coming out and she's like, but you'll see it in the news. So we had a whole, you know, lovely chat and then I was driving and all of a sudden I get a new, like my Dr. Curran sent me a news alert 
oldest known burial found in Panga Yasadi cave. And I was right. driving and I just started screaming in the car. <laughs> and my friend was like, what is wrong? And I was like, I did because I'd been driving for seven hours. So I couldn't put together the words. And I was like, she told me. And now it's in the, I was like, this is so cool. I just was mind blown of like being in the loop. And it was just really fun for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. It's always funny to see the time lag between when yeah. these things come out impress and the time uh, the moment in which they're found but mm -hmm. yeah it's uh but a, but cool. a fun process nonetheless yeah because yeah. yeah. as i'm finishing up my undergrad and i'm starting to do you know i'm actually this is so exciting i can actually say this that this week i started and by friday i'll be submitting my first ever poster presentation with research Ooh, so it's kind of finally like getting the toes in that side of the water obviously i've done a lot of research for classes but none that was really you know based on like a new data set that's never mm -hmm. been analyzed before. So that has been really exciting. I bet, yeah. No, this is this is great. And posters are actually some of the best, uh, some of the best ways to get uh, the conference experience and get mm -hmm. to talking to people and everything. Or is this a, is this a, a, is it's, this a, UCS, a setting it's, it's a UCSB digital okay. colloquium. So it'll yeah, be yeah. fully digital. But I also figured, you know, it's not, um, there's no cost for this one mm -hmm. and it's digital. So I just kind of doing like a quick stable isotope analysis, getting it ready for Friday. And I'm really excited because I think it'll be a great way to get the nerves out first That's round cool. so that next year I can hit up like um, AABAs, I think it's now instead of AAPA and oh. SAA and stuff maybe. So, and have some, a little bit of experience going in. Definitely exciting as as me, like everyone, COVID pushed back my plans. So I had kind of sure. planned to do conferences, you know, my first conferences like this past year, but it's all right. I think I needed that extra time. I've gained a lot of experience from the podcast, gotten a lot of great advice from people on the podcast. So mm -hmm. definite, definitely exciting times. I bet. Yeah. Thank you so much for being here and talking with me today. It was wonderful. And I appreciate, especially you're on a different time zone. It took a while for us to coordinate this. So I really appreciate that we, you know, got, got it done and thank you for all your information. It was wonderful. No, well, I appreciate the invitation and, and thanks for reaching out. It's it's always a nice side effect of giving these uh, guest lectures to be able to interact with students and stuff like that. Mm -hmm.